0: This morning we're going to be looking at uh, Luke 24, one of the resurrection appearance accounts that we find in the four Gospels. We're going to start in verse 13, but just to kind of give you a little background uh, what's happened to this point. Luke 1, uh, the verses 1 through 12, uh, some woman who came to the tomb on that Sunday morning saw the stone rolled away from Jesus' tomb, Two angels tell them that the Lord Jesus is risen and remind them that Jesus told them about his crucifixion and resurrection. So the angels kind of back that up. And then those women return to the apostles, and then Peter runs and sees the empty tomb, and that brings us to where we are now. But one thing, as I was given the children's sermon, that kind of came to me was the idea that uh, no human saw the risen, the actual resurrection happen. All we see is the empty tomb, and then eventually the resurrected Jesus. So nobody actually saw that, but I thought, you know what? Now we know because all we have to do is get that comic book and there's the picture of Jesus rising. So maybe now we finally figured that out. But but what you get is a lot of evidence about Jesus rising. So after these things, on that same very day, we'll start in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So first of all, they're discussing these things, you know, obviously the things that Luke and the other gospels had recorded, you know, they came, that he taught, but then he got arrested, he got beaten, he got crucified, and now we have these accounts that they're trying maybe to understand about the empty tomb. But verse uh, 16 is interesting. They were kept from recognizing him. This is what we call a divine passive. It's not really that complicated. It's a way of showing an action whose source is not given, which is actually the work of God. So some reason, and we find out later what the reason is, but they were kept from recognizing him. These were disciples that obviously had followed him, but they could not understand that this was him. And they were wondering about the things. So... Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood and still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened in these days? So they're kind of confused. How could you not know this? Um, But notice what Jesus does. He does, which is always a good thing to do when you're talking about important things. You're talking about a conversation with someone. Good thing to begin to talk about important things with a question. You talk about what somebody may believe, what they may know. I think about it. um, Sometimes in my conversations with people about spiritual things, in the past, I would actually answer questions they didn't have because I didn't ask what they wanted to know. And you might go off for 15 minutes. I know it's hard to believe for all of you that I could go that long. But for 15, you know, you might go off and then they say, well, yeah, that didn't really bother me. This is the, pro-, you know, so Jesus is asking them, you know, what, what, are, what are you talking about? He wants to know more about where their heart is. And asking questions is always a good way. In fact, Jesus does that quite a bit. I don't know if you knew that, but that's the Socratic method. You remember Socrates, Socrates, uh, Socrates Plato, Aristotle. This is the Socratic method. Ask questions to find out uh, information. And it's kind of a humbling way, and it shows that you care about the other person's point of view. But we get one of the disciples named. Why not both? I don't know, but they have one of them named Cleopas. Now, there's, we're not certain who this is, but there's two uh, ancient traditions that come through about who this might be. One of them, the probably the most prevalent one, is this is Joseph's brother, so this would be Jesus' uncle, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, we do find out from the Gospel of John that uh, some of these people were related in some way. Some of these disciples were related to each other. The other option that's out there is that this is the same person as Alphaeus, And when you get the list of disciples and then Luke, it says, James, the son of Alphaeus, that this would be this uh, father of the second apostle. Why do I tell you that? Because, you know, you try to find out who this is. He's obviously not one of the 12, um, but we see that we have to be careful. Sometimes the Bible clearly tells us that this is the apostles, the 12. Other times it just says disciples, which can include a lot of the women and other disciples like this. But again, they're still trying to figure out what's going on. So as we move on in verse 19, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They are at the tomb in the early morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the woman had said. But him, Jesus, they did not see. So you see as Jesus asks these questions, he starts getting some information on what these guys thought about him. First of all, he's a prophet. Well, that's true. Jesus was a prophet. But that's incomplete, as they will learn. But what's in, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. It shows their inability to recognize God's true Messiah, his plan, and the importance of the empty tomb. They weren't figuring it out yet. But what they said next, to redeem Israel, what did they mean by that? Um, you know, redeem is a word we use today a lot. You know, Jesus redeems us. But on Wednesday, I went and redeemed some cans. So we use the word differently, right? You got to, What do you mean by redeem? Uh, what did they mean about redeem? Sometimes we forget this, but in, you know, when when God set up the people of Israel, mostly through the Mosaic Covenant, eventually it was what we call a theocracy. The politics and the religion were fused. And so you couldn't have politics without religion. You couldn't have religion without politics. I'm glad we figured that out here, and we can do them completely separate. Um, that's kind of sarcastic, if you were wondering. The uh, it, It's always part of it. You know, what do you believe? Well, it was a common belief back then that In the first century, uh, the Jewish ideal was that the Messiah is going to first come and set up this political kingdom, you know, get rid of of those Romans, and then we can work on spiritual renewal. This was, so I think maybe this is what they're thinking of. And you had people even to the point of, of doing horrible things thinking, well, eventually we'll clean all that up. And we have our own vestige of that today, right? We got people, maybe not quite as bad as this, but where they'll say, well, one of these days I'll get to church. One of these days I'll worship. One of these days, I'll be more committed. One of these days, you know, the road to hell is paved with one of these days. But you think about it, it's, it's well, I'll get myself kind, we'll get what we want, and then we'll start really being moral and following Jesus. And, you know, the gospel is the other way around. It's the idea that, God comes and cleanses the people from their sin, gives them his spirit and allows them to live a life worthy of the calling. And then the politics take over. This is really the way America was founded. You you probably know that. You all know your history. Let's start with Judeo-Christian values as our moral foundation and let that buoy up the society. They're trying to do it the opposite. Let's do it ourselves and then maybe we can then clean up things later. We have to be careful with that. We also have a problem here uh, of the belief of what resurrection was. If you remember back in uh, John 11, uh, when Jesus came, Lazarus had died. Mary and Martha are uh, distraught, but Martha seems to be a little bit, uh, has a hold of herself a little bit more, but there's that conversation that Jesus has with Martha, and he says to her, your brother is going to rise. And she says, I know that he will rise at the last day. And that was the Jewish belief. It was a very common belief that, you know, we have that in the Old Testament. Isaiah 65, other places that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and everybody's going to rise up again. And so they had a, a general resurrection idea. They just didn't have a belief that there was going to be one person that was going to start this off. And that's why they have trouble. I know we read this and we think, bah, these guys just, you know, not the brightest lights in the harbor. But you wonder what we would have done. Um, We don't know. Uh, We probably would have, just to be blunt, we probably would have been just as dumb. I mean, I've done a lot of things in my life, and you're like, how come I did that? How many times do I have to hit my head on that step before I figure out I have to duck? We're not the, you know, sometimes, or we we think we know who Jesus is, we set up who we think God is, and then we try to follow that instead of getting into it and trying to figure out who he says he is. But the biggest problem, I think, again, is spiritual here. You know, their eyes are kept from from recognizing him. They don't know who he is. Back in the uh, 11th century, there was a, a bishop of Canterbury by the name of Anselm. He wrote some really good theology. But one of his lines, I think, is great. And I wonder if that's the problem here. And I think it's a problem in today's Christianity, today's America, and the West. You have not yet considered the weight of your sin. This might be the problem. Because you think about it, sometimes in America, it's hard to do evangelism because everybody thinks they're already going to heaven. Why? Well, because they're in America. I read through this many times. It never says because you live in America, you get to go to heaven. (laughs) It does tell you how to do it, and we'll, we'll look at that in a minute. But the idea is, do you realize who you are before a holy God? You see this, repentance is the key. You you go back to Luke 3 where it says that John goes into the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance of the forgiveness of sins. And those who were humble before Yahweh would come to him and realize they needed to repent. And then we come along in Mark, the very if you if you if you don't like to read that much, read Mark cuz it's quick. John the Baptist is already arrested by the time you get to verse 14 and 15 here in the very first chapter. Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is what the prophets came. Everybody comes. Jesus is a prophet in this case. Why does he say repent? Because we have a problem. We are not connected to God. We need something to get us connected. That's the gospel story. Folks, you look back in the prophets. I mean, how many prophets come and say, you know, Jerusalem, you're just doing such a good job. You guys are just wonderful. I'm just coming to fist bump you and stuff. You know, let's have a carnival. Let's have fun. When do they come? They come and tell them to repent. Jeremiah comes and says, just give up. I've already, God is going to destroy you with Babylon. Just Give up so you don't get really destroyed. Isaiah, many, a couple centuries before that says, and repent, you're not following what I've told you to do. Your leaders are not the shepherds I want. Repent, repent. What's repent mean? It means to turn away from your sin and turn toward Yahweh. And that's what Jesus does. He comes and says, repent. So when when this is preached like today or any other time, if people say, well, I don't need that, it's kind of like these guys, their eyes just can't see the need. They have, not yet, they have not yet felt the weight of their sin. But to those who understand that, and you see this in the Gospels, you see it in the letters, when they understand and somebody says repent, then their heart is just wanting him, knowing that he knows that they are weak in their faith, they're weak in their sins, and they need somebody to pull them out. And that's the key. It's where the heart is. So these two seem to believe the tomb was empty. I mean, that's that's just evidence. But the the angels report that Jesus was alive. They just don't quite have it because maybe they don't understand what they need. And that's true today, right? You can go out and today and do an Easter egg hunt or whatever you want to do and tell somebody to repent and they'll look at you like you're a nut. I don't know, the older I get, the more nut looks I get. You know, they keep looking at you like, maybe it's the words. But, uh, you know, again, you think about that when you do jail ministry, when you do prison ministry, when these guys know that they have done, they, they do not deserve to be forgiven. When you say repent, they, they know what you're talking about because they understand the gravity of their sin. A, they're in prison, and B, they're at a Bible study, so you're hoping that they're coming to understand that even that horrible crime that these guys could commit is still obliterated before the Father's eyes because of Jesus' sacrifice. That's what repentance is all about. We have to believe first that we need him before we're going to ask him to save us, right? You have to realize there's something you need to be saved from. So you almost, and it sounds a little bad to say this, but this is the way Jesus does it. You got to believe the bad news before you can understand the good news. You know, if I came and told you that, you know, to your house and said, you know, you all need to get out. Why? Well, I just, I think it'd be good just to get out of the house but I'm watching the game. But just get out, just get out. But what if I came and told you there was a fire in your house and I'm here to help you get out or the fireman's coming? If you realize there's a problem, you'll follow. The problem is most people today, the gospel doesn't get preached that you need to humble yourself before a holy God. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I am working on getting that shirt it says I'm humble. Think it's a good thing to let people know. Um, verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, not a good start if you're those guys, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That uh, verse 27 is quite a verse, all that the prophets have spoken, which, you know, for them was written down. For us, it's written down. It's called the Old Testament. He thinks he's in there. And I've always wondered, and this, I guess I can ask this when I die. I probably won't care. Why don't we get some of that here? I think I know. Just a guess. I think we're supposed to do some work, figure it out. Might have to read the Old Testament and try to study it. But what they did, it looks like they're treating the text selectively. We do that a lot. You know, you can take one. We have a, a little ditty here. They never read a Bible verse. It means don't read just one verse. Read the whole context. Try to understand what it says. What does the author mean? What was the person speaking in the text mean? Then try to apply it to your life. They apparently omitted the Messiah suffering from their theology. You know, we thought he came to redeem Israel. And obviously they killed him, so that can't happen. Their idea of redemption is a little off. But we too, we, we must take the whole counsel of Scripture to understand our theology. The Messiah, the Christ, Messiah is the old Hebrew word, ka, that means anointed one. We have a lot of Messianic prophecies in the Psalms and in the prophets. The Christ is the, the Greek term for that. It's not Jesus' last name. Uh, it's who he is. But it says in the Old Testament that there is going, the Messiah is going to have to suffer. The two main texts that tell us that is Isaiah 53, which we call the suffering servant, and Psalm 22, which gives a almost eerie rendition of crucifixion a thousand years before anybody thought it up. It's like David, the writer of that psalm, is looking at you know, standing at the foot of the cross as he explains this stuff. So the why did he have to do that? Well, we get in Isaiah 50, you know, he was wounded for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins, and by his wounds we are healed. And if you're wondering if that's physical healing or salvation, all you have to do is go to 1 Peter, who uses it for salvation. It's not really that hard. But I think one of the places this is, we're going to look at two texts just quick about this, is... John 3 this is a, a a wonderful text you probably know John 316 at least know it's a good one if you've watched a football game and somebody kicking a field goal because usually they put that up John 316 and I'm going to give you what I think you should cuz it's God so loved the world I don't think it means that God just oh I just really love you guys so much I want to do something so let's 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 send my son You know, no, I think it's, this is how he did it. And you'll see that in brackets. I think that's what, but let's go back to 14. This is again is the, I always call it the Nick at night passage. It's Nicodemus at night with Jesus. And he says to him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So we have to know a little Old Testament. You remember why they did that? If you remember back then, those people were annoying. They were always screwing up. You know, not like America, which always does everything, right? But they were all met, so God sends a bunch of snakes that are poisonous to bite them. I'm not looking for that in America, but I'm glad I live in the north. Those snakes don't do well when it's cold outside. But the, the, the serpent, you see it, it's the you know, it's this medical symbol you know, with the serpent on. It's the healing. It's the idea that if they lucked upon that, the miracle of the, the venom wouldn't bother them. And Jesus uses that. This is a symbol of me, he's saying. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So he, he's talking about his crucifixion, they're lifted up. You know We see that in any of our pageantry we do to to show the cross. And what's the key? Belief. And that's what we get in the rest of these verses. For this is how God showed his love to the world. That's what that means for God so loved. This is how God showed his love to the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the way you should look at John 3.16. You want to know why we can say God is love? What shows that the most? God sent his son to die for a world even though he had no sin. That's, what, that's the perfect love. Jesus kind of said it in the upper room, greater love has no one to give up his life for his friends. Then you add on one who didn't do anything wrong. He's actually paying their penalty and by extension paying the penalty of anybody who believes. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, that's the good news. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, that would be the bad news. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And people can believe what they want, right? You can say, well, I don't agree with John. I don't agree with Jesus here. Well, you can do what you want. But we should at least know what he said. Understand what he said, and then you can. Be- it's up to you whether you're going to believe it or not. That is one of the things God... <laughs> has given us is the freedom to reject Him or to believe in Him. But He sure seems to be giving us a lot of evidence. Verse 27 should send us to the Old Testament to know the person and role of Jesus better. You know, really all of His true followers should desire to know Him better, and the best way to get to know Him is to get into the Word. And if you don't have time for Bible study, cut something out. It's too important, folks. Do you want to stand before your maker and say, well, you know, I didn't have time for you. I wouldn't. And I'm not going to tell you you should. If it, feels you, if it makes you feel guilty, good. Guilt is a good motivator. It hopefully will help you run to the Savior. So he has said this to them. We don't have it. We have to do some work to figure it out. But they're starting maybe to understand because he's told them about the Messiah having to suffer in the Old Testament and that he was fulfilling that. So verse 28, they draw near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was was going on further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So you get this Jewish hospitality, don't let anybody go on their own, you know, because they don't have, so he invites the stranger in, and then he takes this bread, it kind of reminds us of the feeding of the 5,000 where he takes the bread and breaks it and multiplies it. Even more it probably reminds us of the Lord's the Last Supper that he had just had a few days with some of these disciples. There was a I remember I, I think it's called the Miracle Worker. It's a claymation version of the Jesus story. You all remember, or kinda like the you know, I'm dating myself, but the older folks here and the younger ones you can look it up on, you know, Netflix or whatever. Remember Rudolph the red nosed reindeer? You know, how the you know he kinda that stop motion? That's what this is. It's a stop motion uh, rendition, mostly for kids, but I think it's for adults too. But what I remember about this is when Jesus would eat with them, they'd have different verses where he was eating with them. And every time he ate, he'd take the bread, it's always that flat bread, take it up, he put it up like this, and he would rip it. And when they get to this scene, they have Jesus take the bread and lift it up in the air. And that's when Cleopas and his other disciples say, hey, that's Jesus. I thought it was a good way to do it. You know, he gives thanks and rips it, but it really wasn't a physical thing, was it? It was a spiritual thing. It's like the scales fell from their eyes and they could see who he really was. So when we, we look at this, this teaching throughout this is that Jesus is sufficient for, you You just need him. This is what the New Testament tells us. It's so easy. You know, when we do children's sermon, when you ask a question, I always tell the kids, it's like, if you don't know the answer, just say Jesus. You've got a 90% chance of being right. And if you're wrong, I'll say, well, that's a good answer. It's not the right one, but it's a good one. Because Jesus, that's the whole gospel, isn't it? Focus on him. We were talking about basket. Put all of your eggs in the Jesus basket, every one of them. If you're going to fall, fall on him. If you're going to stand up for something, stand up for what he stood up. If you're going to believe something, believe what he taught about who he is and how we're supposed to act and what we're supposed to do. We don't need anything added for our salvation. That is a problem out there. These other gospels, adding good works, no. We'll look at Ephesians 2 here in a second and we'll see where good works land. Sacraments, special days, rituals, they can all have their place, but you don't need those to be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's about faith, and we see this in Ephesians 2. We are saved by grace, by what Jesus did, imputing His righteousness to us and taking away our sins on the cross. By grace, you have been saved through faith. How do I get that activated trust? Does that mean you have to understand everything? No. No. Just hit your wagon to the the Jesus. That's all you have to do. And follow him. That's why he said that. An ongoing trying to understand him and knowing, knowing that you're not going to fall every time you mess up, he's not going to kick you out of heaven. And this is not in your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We have to remember that. We don't want to add the good works. Because I'll tell you, you know, there's a lot of good people here, I'm sure. And I'm a pretty good guy if you don't get to know me. But none of, our, none of our works are good enough. I mean, do you think you're going to do anything for God that's going to impress him? He's seen a lot. But you can do something for God that makes him proud. And that's really what it's all about, isn't it? We do good works because we're saved. He catches us, fish analogy, And then he cleans us up. Cleans us up, makes us righteous, and gives us the ability to live a life worthy of the calling. It'd be kind of silly, I don't know how many fishermen are in here, to try to clean the fish before you catch it. It, You know, it doesn't really work, does it? And that's kind of what this is talking about, this ongoing idea that grace is something that saves us and you're saved once you have trusted him, but it's something that we live by the rest of our life, knowing that God, and this is the key, God does not look at you as just a righteous judge once you are a child of his through Christ. So when you mess up, he doesn't look look at you as a righteous judge, but as a loving father. And if Jesus is right, and I think he is, and Paul and John and Peter and the rest, his grace is much stronger than our ability to fall short once in a while. It's where's your heart. To quote the great theologian John Calvin when they ask, how do I know that I'm saved? And he, I love the way he put it. Do you feel guilty when you sin?" That is a good way to know. It, you know. When you mess up, what do you do? I hope you approach the throne of grace with confidence, confessing that you've fallen short and you want to reconcile the relationship with the Father that does not get severed because you mess up. Now that's grace. <laughs> and that's what we always have to remember. And on the day-to-day basis, Luke gives us this, Jesus saying this in the middle of chapter 9. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and daily follow me this is big in our culture who am i how do i identify myself all this kind of stuff number one if you want to follow jesus deny yourself it's not about you it's about him and what's cool when it becomes about him and you accept the grace and you trust in him and have the faith it all of a sudden becomes about you because now you can call god father you know that's a privilege folks In the normal course of creation god's not your father he's your judge and creator but through christ we can say our father and i think the r there is not just all of us saying it together it's jesus is included because if he's not included he's not your father think about it's always a privilege to be able to say that because we don't deserve it that's grace so once his grace is accepted true faith is shown by our motives thoughts and our actions. And I think John the Baptist hits this really good, you know, he wasn't, he probably hadn't taken the uh, how to win friends and influence people course. Um, The crowd's come to be baptized and you brood of vipers. I was going to start the sermon that way, the welcome. Hi all you brood of vipers. Um, He's talking to the people who are rejecting him and then by extension ejecting the one he's come before. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I I remember that every day I wake up because is my life going to look like that I've repented and I follow Jesus? If it doesn't, you start to have to call in the question, am I actually following him or am I just kind of giving him lip service? So verse 31, going back to the eyes recognizing him, it's as, you know, Jesus does this, the prophets do this sometimes, It's kind of an enacted parable. It really happens, but you see their eyes are open and they can recognize Jesus. But you can see in the background, John 3, 3, just earlier in the Nicodemus passages, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you were born again, born from above, born of the spirit, however you want to translate that, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So something happened to to these guys' eyes by God so they could see him. And something has to happen to every one of you if you believe something happened. Something changed. The Holy Spirit changed your heart, as Ezekiel says, from a heart of stone that's hard to a heart of flesh that's able to take the things and humbly follow. So we always remember that. That's a, it's kind of, an, they couldn't see him unless Jesus, and you couldn't see the kingdom unless God did something. And all, and all he really asks us to do is call out and repent. Verse 31's kind of cool, too, with, uh, he vanishes from their sight. I wonder if it'll be like this for us when we die. In new heaven and new earth, you can just vanish anytime you want. Make magic shows kind of boring, I guess. Everybody could do it. I don't know if everybody, it'd be kind of cool if you're playing football and you were the only one that could do that. You line up, you know, and the guy's there and poof, you're gone. And then 40 yards later, poof, I'm there. It'd be really hard to cover, wouldn't it? But I suppose if one person gets it, they all get it. We don't know. Jesus, is, you know, sometimes we get information from this. We remember Jesus is truly human, certainly, but he's truly God. So I assume his resurrected body had some of the characteristics that we'll have, but maybe not all. Um, it's hard to know. But he had this consistently. He's uh, He appears just in the room like that in these in some of these other accounts. It's kind of a cool thing to be able to do. This is the third of 12 postmodern appearances that are given in the Bible as proof of Jesus' resurrection. If anybody says to you there's not a lot of evidence, a lot of evidence. It's just up to you whether you believe it. And he often predicted his resurrection. Go back again to Luke 9. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priest, be killed, and on the third day be raised. Why didn't they get it? My guess is they thought this was a parable. They thought, well, he's just kind of talking about that. He still has to get the Rome thing set up, right? And the truth of the resurrection, we say this, this is, this is key. Uh, the Bible says that. If you want obliterate, to obliterate Christianity, find the body of Jesus. I don't think you're going to. But that's it. It's, it's falsifiable. We don't believe in a spiritual resurrection. We've got spiritual parts to it. We believe in a bodily resurrection. Anybody can fake spiritual resurrection, right? I mean, you got people walking around saying, you know, Grandma McGillicuddy appears to him. That would be a spiritual resurrection. and I got padded rooms for people like that, usually. But the resurrection itself is important, right? Paul hits this hard in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a resurrection chapter. If you read later, you get a little information about the resurrected bodies. But he says, this is how important it is. If Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, we're even found to be misrepresenting God Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true the dead were not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's the importance of the resurrection. Then those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, that we've done funerals for and hoped because of their faith that they're with Christ, they've... They perished. There's nothing there. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. We put this as very key, and you see this in Acts 17 when Paul's preaching God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance, evidence to all by raising him from the dead. He did it with Lazarus. My guess is Lazarus died again. But when Jesus rose, he's still alive. We sing about that. We've already sung about it. So let's finish up these last few verses. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So these two knew Jesus, but after their eyes were opened and they understand what he was about, they had a better understanding from Scripture who he really was. And they couldn't wait to tell others, which is kind of cool, isn't it? They want to tell people what happened. And that's what we need to look at in our own day, that the purpose of any faithful church today is clearly and consistently preaching the true biblical Jesus. And that's what we always strive to do here. That Jesus was truly God, truly man, the only path of salvation for all. Why do we say that? Because he said that. Why do we believe it? Because we trust him. So we hope that people can understand him, have their eyes open, the eyes of their heart, as it says in Ephesians 1, to repent, realize their sin, and believe in him so that they have him as an advocate for the Father for the rest of their lives eternally, and then have that desire to daily serve him and to know him more and more. Let us pray. Father, as we see this, we see from the old covenant that this was always planned, that this was the this was the redemption that was always promised, that Jesus was going to come, the Messiah was going to come, And we get the plane landed so well here in these Gospels that show us why Jesus died, why he rose. May we have a desire in our hearts to know you better through your word, through worship, through prayer, through serving your church. May we always want to live the life worthy of the calling. Amen.